everybody. Welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with an academic background in international relations focused on security policy and real-world experience working in the U.S. domestic political space and living in a number of other countries than my own, all of which combined, I think, positions me fairly well both to interpret for my international audience what's going on in the politics of my own country and to shed light for some of the folks back home on some events of note going on in the rest of the world. So there have been a bunch of things happening lately just in American politics that all probably could have warranted their own episode on this show if I hadn't been swamped lately. Everything from the fact that the entire continent is now apparently plagued by mysterious balloons that NORAD has to come in and shoot down, or the fact that the Republicans in Congress have decided to use their new House majority to hold a hearing uh, about something-something weaponization of government and then drag a bunch of Twitter employees in front of them to yell at them for the fact that they blocked the posting of Hunter Biden's non-consensual dick pics or something. Or the fact that President Biden fooled those same Republican Congress people into publicly appearing to commit to not slash Social Security Medicaid when a bunch of the grossest teabagger types heckled him from the back benches during the State of the Union. But I'm not going to talk about any of that today. Because today, a year ago, February 24th, 2022, the corrupt dictator of a country that exists right now as basically just a pirate on the world stage, a force for disruption that at least in this part of its history contributes nothing to the world but violence and gas, decided to attempt to gobble up the democracy next door. Yes, 365 days ago, strategic genius Vladimir Putin launched his glorious three-day special military operation to denazify Ukraine, whose president, the Jewish descendant of Holocaust survivors, was chosen freely by a solid majority of his fellow countrymen in a fair election. Or, as Russia calls it, fascism. I will fully admit to having been one of the people who at the time thought Kiev was going to fall in a week. Boy, am I glad I was wrong. There's a million things to be talked about and reflected on a year into this brutal attack on Ukraine. I've scratched the surface of a few on this podcast, particularly the appalling and widespread human rights violations perpetrated by the Russians against the Ukrainian people. Everything from mass rape to concentration camps and the systematic kidnapping of children to endless deliberate lethal attacks on civilian targets. Tons of things about this war warrant a podcast episode of their own. But a year in, it's worth circling back to the fundamental point of how incredible it is that a year into a war carried out by the supposedly 10-foot-tall Russian military, once held up by American Republican idiot senators as the pinnacle of fearsome know, army manly awesomeness or something in contrast to the namby-pamby woke American military or whatever, that a year into this war, it's been revealed that the Russian army isn't the second best military in the world, it's the second best army in Ukraine, its supposedly weaker neighbor. Yes, contrary to all the weird, admiring shit Republican Senator Ted Cruz used to like to tweet about the Russian army, it turns out it's actually kind of pathetic. I mean, there's the anecdotal stuff we've seen come out of the three-day slam-dunk special military operation turned into a year-long global military embarrassment. The videos of Ukrainian girls in, like, Ugg boots and fluffy jackets stealing Russian armored personnel carriers. Or farmers in tractors towing away Russian tanks and MRAPs and stuff. Or, of course, the Russian flagship in the Black Sea getting sunk. Or, as they put it, there was a storm. I mean, the sun was in our eyes and we crashed. I mean, somebody lit a cigarette near a gas tank. This press conference is over. But then, beyond the anecdotes, there are numbers. Like... 
At this point, there are various estimates, but based on even the most low-end calculations, the Russians have lost at least as many soldiers in a year as the U.S. did in, like, a decade in Vietnam. They've lost thousands of tanks, thousands of other armored vehicles, you know, in addition to those towed away by Ukrainian farmers, thousands of artillery pieces, hundreds of military jets, and tons of other equipment. One especially embarrassing tidbit is that in their latest invasion of Ukraine, I say that because Russia has been invading Ukraine since 2014, but since their huge escalation last year, the Russians have lost, like, a ton of generals. By one estimate, as many as 20. This, this is crazy, for those who don't know about how war works. By contrast, the U.S. hasn't lost a single general in combat since the 70s, unless you count one who died in a weird, like, friendly fire, insider attack sort of incident about 10 years ago. Even the reason why Russians keep losing so many generals is in itself embarrassing. The reason why is that the Russian soldiers kind of suck and aren't really able to operate autonomously at the unit level, so generals keep having to come up to the front and then just get sniped. It really is incredible, you think about it, that a year after this supposedly super-impressive military invaded Ukraine, the Russians are now reduced to recruiting convicts from prisons to join the creepy Wagner paramilitary group so they can throw them at the front lines. Now, I would say I'm concerned that sending barely trained violent convicts to the front would lower the quality of human that the Russians are sending to occupy another country, but unfortunately, let's face it, ordinary Russian soldiers were already doing just fine massacring and raping civilians and stealing everything not bolted to the floor. This already could have very well been described as a special military operation to liberate Ukrainians from their Apple products well before Putin flunky and someday maybe replacement Yevgeny Prigozhin, the guy who runs the Wagner Group, emptied Russian prisons all over Bakhmut. It's just crazy to me that, like, a year ago, Russian Spetsnaz special forces were failing to take the airport near Kiev, and now a year later, Russia is reduced to using convicts as cannon fodder and human wave attacks, resulting in thousands of Russian KIA every day. Like, yeah, this more than anything else is what strikes me a year in. So, what does this mean? What can we take away from this? Well, one thing I think we can take away from this is that in the short term, at least, Russian civil society is not coming to the rescue in a way that it once might have. Historically, Russians have at times acted courageously to block bad actions by, by totalitarian governments of their country. For example, in the early 90s, the USSR finally completed its rolling collapse, basically in a bloodless coup, led by brave Russian citizens who stood up and put themselves on the line for the right thing. And before the USSR fell, the Soviet war in Afghanistan was famously brought to a close because Russian mothers at the time simply weren't willing to see more of their sons' lives sacrificed for a cause they didn't understand or support. But that was then. Russia lost more soldiers in, like, the first three months of this latest invasion of Ukraine than they did in a decade in Afghanistan, and there doesn't appear to be any serious domestic opposition to Putin, except, of course, from even more horrible Russists, a word that I love, by the way, that the Ukrainians have come up with as a shorthand for, like, violent fascistic Russian nationalists, that is, when they don't just call them orcs, the only, sorry, the only serious uh, opposition to Putin appears to be coming from those who are even worse than him, who keep loudly and unironically asking why the Kremlin doesn't just start nuking everybody. Now, before I go down the rabbit hole that, yeah, I think I'm gonna go down now, 
I want to just acknowledge that Russia is the nation that gave the world Tolstoy, Tchaikovsky, and Chekhov. But this war has revealed a profound rot in Russian culture, at least as it stands now. Take the appalling behavior of so many Russian troops in Ukraine. I keep pointing out when it comes to this that a lot of other countries go to war. But although war is certainly bad and always violent and unpleasant, most countries' soldiers, especially those who, justified or not, like to think of themselves as important powers on the world stage, the soldiers of most of those countries manage to go to war without engaging in mass theft, rape, and wanton massacres of civilians. What makes this even worse is that we love to be able to say, yeah, it's bad, but it's just Putin, or it's just the Russian military culture. It's not reflective of Russia or Russian culture as a whole. It would be much more comfortable to be able to be limited in our criticism. But the thing is that many, many of these soldiers are conscripts, people who basically got pulled off the street, given a few days of training, handed an AK and sent to the front. Meaning that the behavior of Russian soldiers seems to be a lot more reflective of a broad swath of civilian society in Russia than, well, than is comfortable. Or than would allow us to take the more comfortable path of writing this bad behavior off as some dark and awful quirk of just the Russian military. To my point that Russian civil society, at least in the short term, will not solve this problem and the rot extends beyond just that country's military, where are the protests? I mean, there were a few demonstrations around the beginning of the invasion, and my deepest respect to those who did that, but not a whole lot since. And I know that I will get shit for asking that. Somebody inevitably will say, but Oliver, of course they're not resisting. How can you imply that they have that responsibility when Putin's government is so dangerous and scary? Now, I could be snarky here and say that I'm pretty sure that the women of Iran could teach the people of Russia a thing or two about bravery standing up to an authoritarian regime, but yeah, okay. I'll save that for the 2022 year in review episode that I was planning, if I ever still get around to it. And let's just acknowledge here, now, as I do, that domestic resistance in Putin's Russia is a very high-risk prospect, and it's possible to be a good person and still not want to join a protest in Red Square. Granted. So then let's say, for the sake of argument that the lack of any serious domestic opposition in Russia to the genocidal war they are carrying out against their neighbors does not, on its own, imply that there's something kind of deeply messed up in Russian culture right now. The lack of any serious resistance is just because individual Russians are deeply afraid to risk their safety protesting in that country. Yeah, except hundreds of thousands of Russians have fled Russia since they invaded Ukraine a year ago, either because of the initial economic impact from the sanctions, or because later on, when the broader draft started, they didn't want to be sent to the front themselves and run the risk of accidentally standing too close to a general and getting sniped. My guess is most of these people went to countries where, if they wanted to, they would be at no risk at all making their voices heard in opposition to the atrocities being committed in their name. But I am aware of no such thing taking place at scale. At the first protest against the invasion that I went to here in Barcelona almost exactly a year ago, I saw one girl whose sign said something to the effect of, I'm Russian, I'm sorry for this, not in my name, something like that. And good for her. That's what a good person does. But a couple of sources show that there are somewhere over 15,000 Russians in Barcelona. Where the hell are the rest of them? 
The last few months have seen massive demonstrations in a number of countries organized and attended by thousands of Iranians protesting the behavior of their homeland's vicious government. If all these Russians who left Russia had any problem with what their homeland's government was doing in their name, couldn't they probably manage to do something similar? Now I should say, as a caveat, after my none-too-gentle treatment here of Russian culture as it is today, that I know that there are incredibly brave Russian opposition figures inside and outside of Russia who we should all support. Uh, and on a personal level, I've known Russians from before the war who are wonderful people who oppose Putin and would never behave anything like the way Russians in that country's military are now. I've also met some Russians who have fled the country since the start of the war and are horrified and deeply ashamed by what their government is doing. But unfortunately, based on what we've seen in the last year, such people really do appear to be a fraction of the whole, bringing me back to my point that one takeaway from the war so far, a year in, has to be that Russian civil society will not fix this, at least in the short term. Hey, side note, before we go on with the episode, have you subscribed to the podcast yet? If not, go do it. That way you don't miss an episode, and also it really helps with the whole algorithm thing to get the show into more people's podcast feeds. I would be wrong if I didn't also say in this little interlude that leaving a rating and a review and sharing the link to the podcast on social media would also have that effect. So if you feel like doing me a favor, please go do those things. Okay, so for now at least, Russian civil society is unable and or and unwilling to put a stop to this horror show being carried out in their name. So then what does that mean? Well, it means barring something unforeseen, the human wave attack on Ukraine is going to keep coming. And to put it bluntly, we are unlikely to see the orcs Russia's sending into Ukraine evolve into comparatively decent professional soldiers who obey the laws of war anytime soon, since A, the Russian frontline is now basically made up of convicts recruited into a vicious mercenary organization whose MO is to perpetrate human rights violations on a massive scale, and B, the same leadership is in place on the Russian side. Oh, and also because just raising everything to the ground without the slightest regard for human life, the Geneva Conventions, or even their own soldiers, has been how the Russians appear to do war at every point from World War II to the Chechen Wars to Syria to the last year. All of which means the free world has to continue to stand with Ukraine, as President Biden said the other day on his surprise visit to Kiev, as long as it takes. This brings me back to the fundamental point I'm making in this episode of how amazing it is that this is where things are. A year later, the Russist attack on Ukraine resulted not in a parade of Russian soldiers in dress uniform goose-stepping their way down a thoroughfare in Kiev a la Nazis in Paris circa 1940 with Putin glowering over the proceedings from a viewing stand a week after the invasion, but rather a year later, in the American president taking a stroll through the streets of the Ukrainian capital in casual disregard of the air raid sirens going off in the background, with Ukraine's president, alive and well despite, we think, a clear plan by the Russians to kill him. Some of the fact that we're here a year later, rather than instead waiting for Putin to invade Moldova or one of the Baltic states from the now-annexed territory of Ukraine and Belarus, is because it turns out that the Russian government and military sucks. And yes, I chose to focus a big chunk of this episode on that. But it should also go without saying that a huge part of the reason that we're here is because of the unbelievable bravery, stubbornness, ingenuity, and resilience of the Ukrainian people, along with their president, who's like Winston Churchill, if Winston Churchill were reincarnated and then wasn't trashed all the time. 
I have to say, I've actually met a bunch of Ukrainians since the war started who tell me they originally didn't vote for Zelensky, but definitely would have knowing what they know now. The most credit for the fact that we're has to go to the incredible resistance mounted by the Ukrainians, because as fun as I've had bashing Russia here, it has to be acknowledged that they are still an extremely dangerous, persistent, and ruthless enemy, whether they're bombing civilians or interfering in elections to undermine free democracies. And speaking of free democracies, it has to be said that although, again, most credit should go to the Ukrainians themselves, they likely wouldn't have been able to survive this onslaught without the coordinated help of the world's largest free democracies. Well, most of them anyway. Thanks a lot, India and Brazil. The coordination among the world's economically powerful democracies has been nothing short of amazing, and tons of credit for the unbelievably impressive work of bringing this global coalition together has to go to Joe Biden, the greatest American president in the lifetime of anyone under 55 years old, arguably more. Because we increasingly know about a bunch of covert US-led stuff that happened in advance of the invasion to get Ukraine ready for this. And of course, the whole world has been able to see the impressive coordination between democracies to get military hardware to Ukraine. NATO has not been this united possibly ever in its history. As Biden put it recently in his speech in Poland, Putin thought he'd get the Finlandization of NATO. Instead, he got the NATOization of Finland. It is amazing to see the way the global good guys have come together around this, and I am super proud of NATO and America's other democratic allies. But a big chunk of the direct support has come from the U.S., and a decent bit of the rest probably at least would have been a lot less likely without U.S. encouragement and coordination. And can you honestly imagine it having gone this way if Trump was still the president? Mark Polymeropoulos, a former CIA analyst, said on Morning Joe the other day, and I think he's right, that if Trump had won the 2020 election, Putin would now control all of Ukraine and NATO would be in tatters. Fortunately, though, that isn't the case. But we have to be realistic. It could be at some point in the near future. Unless Donald Trump gets the prison sentence he so richly deserves, and another weird, creepy, anti-democratic russophile doesn't win the Republican nomination in his place, which is a little too much to hope for, we could be one U.S. election away from the nightmare scenario Polymeropolis outlined. With that being the case, and the global democratic alliance having come together to support a righteous battle for democracy, we have to be dug in for the long haul. And critically, we need to now give Ukrainians the tools not just to survive, but to win. The Russian leadership isn't going to be deterred by simply not winning. They have to lose. In the long term, for the sake of global stability, there have to be consequences for them having attempted to gobble up a democracy. And in the short term, to end the war, Ukraine has to win. It might be counterintuitive to some, but the way we shorten the war and save lives is a good offense. More and more powerful weapons. We need to help Ukraine win. Just to note here, after all the ridiculous saber-rattling from the Putin government and the hysterical calls for nuclear holocaust and holy war against the diabolical, corrupt, decadent West that keep coming out of the Russian version of Fox News, no, we can't keep being cowed by this bullshit. Putin's a monster, but he's not suicidal. This is just the same bluster Russia's always used to scare the free world into backing down. Over and over again, we've made the mistake of paying attention. If we try to stop the Russians from doing X awful thing, they might get mad and do Y awful thing in escalation. But no. Putin's always just followed the famous Lenin adage, advance with your bayonets. When you encounter mush, continue. When you encounter steel, stop. 
put in simpler terms, he's just a bully. He's going to keep pushing to see how much he can get away with until you punch him in the nose. All the countries supporting Ukraine deserve credit, but the free world needs to step it up because just not losing isn't enough. Russia may be too weak to defeat the Ukrainian military, but as long as they're in the fight, as we've seen, when they can't defeat the Ukrainian military, they'll just keep murdering as many Ukrainian civilians as they can in the hopes that the rest of the world gets distracted and or the Ukrainians give up. Biden said in his speech in Poland the other day, Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Good. But it has to be more than just a not victory. It has to be a loss. And the sooner the better for a whole bunch of reasons. Finally, one more point. I want to make, reflecting on this conflict a year out, is to touch on the way the democratic world's involvement on Ukraine's behalf in this conflict has affected us. I don't mean like annoying higher energy prices or whatever, I mean in terms of the way we view the world, particularly those of us who fall more on the political left of center. I think a lot of people have sort of relearned or remembered the importance of democracies projecting their values out beyond their own borders rather than hiding behind a sort of weird relativist, how dare we interfere isolationism. Many of the enemies of democracy aren't going to stop just because they don't have the right to project their will onto others or something. I think, and very much hope, that this conflict is causing a lot of us on the center and the left across the democratic world to reconnect with this particular good part of the political left and center left's legacy when it comes to foreign policy. I talked ages ago on, I think, episode four of this podcast back in the 2020 election when Biden was choosing his vice presidential candidate, spoiler alert, I wanted somebody else, about the Democratic Party's complicated relationship with foreign policy, the military, and foreign intervention. The left in the U.S., I think, has been burned by tragic and consequential misadventures in Vietnam and more recently in Iraq, and a bunch of us have forgotten that there are times when the only real solution to a problem is a military one. We should never be, like, eager to go to war. I would never, it should never be a first resort. But there are just causes that it's worth using military force to defend, or at least using military resources to help others use military forces to defend. In 1940, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, America's greatest president hands down in my book, called on us to be the great arsenal of democracy. He did that at a time when right-wing isolationists at home would have had us abandon our values as a nation and leave our allies to be eaten by fascists. Most of the right learned it was wrong and moved away from that position for a couple of generations, but interestingly enough, many on the far right now seem to be reconnecting with their roots as amoral, the rest of the world can go to hell, isolationists. Whether that be for any serious ideological reasons or just me like Trump, Trump like Russia, me like Russia, is as yet unclear. But regardless, why don't we counter that by reconnecting with our Rooseveltian roots and understand that being judicious about when we use force and steering clear of tragic mistakes like the Second Iraq War doesn't mean there aren't times when an intervention really is the best option to save the most people. And there are things worth physically fighting for, as Ukrainian men and women struggling to hold on to freedom keep reminding us over and over again every goddamn day. As President Biden put it the other day, freedom. There is no sweeter word than freedom. There is no nobler goal than freedom. There is no higher aspiration than freedom. A year out, 
from the brutal, unjustified, evil attempt to subjugate Ukraine by a truly despicable enemy. Freedom still survives in that country because the democratic world has rallied in support of it and because Ukrainians have fought tooth and nail for it. Stand with Ukraine. Slava Ukraini. That's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you like the show and want to know when I finally get off my ass and release the next episode, hit subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. Also, I'm so sorry to join the parade of content producers begging you to please, please like and subscribe and leave a review and share the show on social media or with anybody else you think might enjoy it. But you doing so really does help fool the algorithm into thinking that this show belongs a little further up in that aforementioned parade. So please do it. As always, I'd like to thank my friend Nate Wright for having produced the podcast artwork and you for listening.